Good to see you. We just appreciate you being here tonight. Uh, Take your Bibles, if you would, go to the book of Acts, chapter 28. After I revealed to you Sunday morning a couple of stories about myself, I feel like that you got the wrong impression. And uh, so I called Brother Maury Gibson today and said the preacher announced that I was the honorest preacher they'd ever had. And then I reminded him, wait a minute, Maury Gibson's been at this church. So I told him, I said, Brother Gibson, I'm still in second place. But anyway, and he sent his greeting, and he's in a meeting in Indiana this week. And uh, I know that you've been praying for his wife, and uh, she has uh, had some good improvement. So we're thankful for that and just rejoice that the Lord is answering our prayer. But keep praying for her. Uh, Acts chapter 28, let's begin reading in verse number 1. Acts chapter 28 When they were escaped, they knew that the island was called Melita. It's interesting to think about in the previous chapter, the Apostle Paul had been in a shipwreck and he had given warning for them not to go. And, you know, they said, what do you know about sailing? Well, it wasn't that he knew sailing, but he knew the Savior. And God had told him that it would be a very dangerous thing. Nevertheless, they went and the result was a shipwreck and yet he had gotten the confirmation from God that everyone was going to make it safely uh, to the shore. And that's what happened. Now they come to this island and of course uh, the Bible said in verse 2, and the barbarous people showed us no little kindness. And could I just pause and say that sometimes even unsaved people, heathen people, can show some grace and kindness and even have compassion. You know, it's not hard to motivate people for the most part to even be nice enough to care about feeding the hungry and clothing the naked. And if there's a disaster like we have happening right now in the South, there are many people that will rise to help in those occasions. And by the way, I'm not critical of that. I'm grateful if I was in their position, I'd hope there'd be people that would want to come and help. And, and yet I, I think so often we miss the greater need And sadly, sometimes as Christians, we forget that not only should we be, of course, willing to feed the hungry and clothe the naked, far more importantly, the greatest thing I can do is present the gospel of Jesus Christ. If I could feed every hungry soul in the world and and every life and yet not give them Christ, I've missed it all. I remember in 1981, the first time that I went to the uh, country of Haiti, the overwhelming sense of poverty and difficulties that were there and I remember seeing a little child that uh, I did not realize until uh, brother Harold Boyd explained to me that child was in the final stages of malnutrition his body was beginning to absorb all of the protein out of his hair it had changed the color of his hair and his little belly was so swollen from uh, not being able to eat and it just was a pathetic sight and I remember saying to brother Boyd can we stop and feed him and brother Boyd said we can but there'll be a hundred more that need to be fed I said well we may not get to all of them but let's get that family something to eat and we did and of course was able through uh, the help of an interpreter to share the gospel with the family But our our main mission wasn't to go there to feed the hungry. If that young man got a meal or maybe got enough to eat and somehow survived and years and years went by and he never met Christ, he would have missed the most important thing. And so here the barbarous people are showing kindness. The Bible said, For they kindled a fire and received us, everyone, because of the present rain and because of the cold. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks, 
and laid them on the fire, there came a viper out of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the barbarians saw the venomous beast hang on his hand, they said among themselves, No doubt this man is a murderer, who, though he hath escaped the sea, yet vengeance suffereth not to live. And he shook off the beast into the fire and felt no harm. Howbeit they looked when he should have swollen or fallen down dead suddenly, but after they had looked a great while and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a God. I want to preach tonight on this thought that we really need a fire. Now, I'm not talking about the fire that would burn the building down. I'm not talking about the fire that would sweep through the community. I'm not talking about the fire that we see in so many places. But if there's ever been a need for the fire of God to fall, we need it today. I want you to notice a few things with me. First of all, the Bible said as they come through the shipwreck, they get to the other side. We see the reason for the fire. The Bible tells us here that the fire is needed because of the present rain. Can you imagine it's bad enough? They've been shipwrecked. They've had to float along on boards and whatever means they could to get there. And then when they get to the land, uh, it's a rain that's coming down. The Bible said because of the present rain and and do you think about the present rain that we have of sin in this world now I know sin has always been around and if you're a student of history you'll know that there are times when things have been so bleak and and so uh, unbelievably wicked there are times in our history when uh, sin was abounding in such a tremendous way and yet some of us can remember when things were better than they are today in the sense of there was a greater God-fearing mindset in this country. Uh, I'm old enough to still remember in the early days of childhood when we still prayed at school, when we still said the pledges, Pledge of Allegiance at school, uh, where we still had in the public school a dress code. I'm old enough to remember some of those things that were placed upon us uh, in those days that uh, rapidly changed before I got out of school school and, and uh, boy uh, they, they made an effort to get any influence or any impact of God and by the way uh, we sowed to the wind of as a nation and we're reaping the whirlwind no doubt about it and uh, sin has always been around but it has never been any more prevalent in our face than it has I'm talking about in our lifetime than it is right now. But not only because of the present reign of sin and its permissiveness and its pervertedness, but because of the prevailing cold. He said not only was it raining, but it was cold. Now, uh, rain is one thing, but when you get in a cold rain and you've already been out in the ocean and you've already been swimming to the shore and now you're dealing with a cold and chilling uh, temperature along with the rain, you can imagine how miserable they are. And can I tell you, there is a lot of coldness that has crept in to our people today and in our churches today. The dryness of our eyes ought to really grieve us tonight. Think about this, and I'm not here to scold you tonight, but when is the last time that we wept over a loved one that was lost? When's the last time it dawned on you that if your son or your daughter or your mother or your father or your brother or your sister, your co-worker, if they die without Jesus Christ, they're going to spend eternity in a place called hell, a place where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. When's the last time we were broken over sinners dying and going to hell? What a tragedy it is to realize that we have the answer and too often we get cold and indifferent to the need of those around us. The dryness of our eyes and sometimes the deadness of our worship. Now, you know tonight 
I'm not preaching for wildfire. And I thank God the crowd I run with, we don't worry about wildfire. But I am concerned about no fire. Folks, we serve the living God. We have eternal life. We're going to live as long as God lives. Do you understand nobody has any more right or reason to be happy than a child of God? you understand on your worst day it's better than the best day the world will ever know? We're going to spend eternity in heaven. What a joy that is. The reason the fire is needed. But notice, secondly, the responsibility for the fire. You know, every one of us have a responsibility to help uh, this fire take place in the house of God. Uh, you know, the shepherd of the flock, you know this. You're a blessed church. You're celebrating your church's anniversary. And that that's exciting. Your pastor's been here many, many years. And I'll tell you, church, it's easy sometimes if we're not careful uh, to take things for granted. But you're blessed to have a man of God that feeds you the Word of God, that you get to hear the great truths of God's Word, a man who studies and prays and seeks the face of God. And we have an expectation when the pastor mounts the pulpit that he's come ready to feed us with the Word of God, and rightfully so. But can I tell you, it's not just the shepherd's responsibility, dear friend. Uh, that uh, also includes all of us saved folks. We ought to come to church wanting to be a part of what God wants to do in sending revival. Man, we can blame society and our world is messed up. We can blame the politicians and for the most part, they're really messed up. We can cry out about the White House and we can gripe about the uh, Congress and we can complain about all of the evil sin of our society. But I would remind you tonight that if there's ever been a need for revival any greater than there is now, it must be that God's people will get serious about getting a hold of the face of God and crying out over those that are lost and having a genuine desire to see real revival take place. You know, oftentimes if you're, again, a student of history and you've studied revivals, you'll find that some of the greatest genuine revivals that ever took place started with the young people. Now, I don't always understand that, but I did hear a preacher say one time, you know, when you go to build a fire, you don't start with the biggest log. But you get that kindling, you get those twigs. They're more bendable and they're more willing and easy to be used. And can I tell you, sometimes God will stir the embers of children and young people and then move on into the adults. And mom and dad, can I tell you, uh, you and I need to realize that God still wants to do a great work in our hearts and lives. Listen, I, I want you to understand, everywhere we go, we can be in revival meetings, but we don't always see real revival break out. And, and uh, let me say, I'm not trying to define for you what revival is, except to say, as I mentioned yesterday, when God's people genuinely get right with God, it is an amazing uh, result that happens when real revival takes place. I mentioned that I came from a preacher's home. I had uh, five sisters and I was the only boy and my mom and dad adopted my brother. He came to our home through a very tragic situation. He had felt rejection like few people ever have in the circle I run in. He had uh, been placed with his dad for a little while and his dad abandoned him. Then he got to back with his mom and stepdad and one night they 
got into it and his mom locked him out of the house eight years of age and the police found him in the dumpster trying to find something to eat. They called my parents and said, hey, uh, I know that uh, you're not taking children in or anything like that, but could you give this boy a place to stay for two weeks while we find a place? Well, two weeks turned into two months and and, uh, through a course of events, God led my parents to pursue adoption and I always thought it was kind of neat. He was born... July the 26th, 1964. My dad moved to Lincoln, Illinois to pastor what was then the State Street Baptist Church, which became Park Meadows. But in 1965 of July, my parents moved there a year after Jeff was born. But when you look at his birth certificate, I always thought it was neat. Because on his birth certificate, it says that Bobby Jean McBroom Graham and Virgil Monroe Graham were the parents of Jeffrey Scott Graham, who was born July the 26th, 1964. According to his birth certificate, my mother was there giving birth to him at the Lincoln Memorial Hospital, even though it was a year later before they'd lived there. What a great picture that is of our adoption in Christ. Listen, he had a whole new record given to him when he got in the family. But my brother was eight and... As he came to the home, listen, Jeff had uh, all the same challenges that every little boy does. The first day they dropped him off. My dad wasn't there. My dad got home and the neighbor lady came over later and said, I think your son shot a BB through my front window on my door. And dad said, are you sure it was my son? She said, I'm positive it was your son. He was sitting on your front porch. Dad said, what did he look like? Well, I'm 16 at the time. And she said, well, you know, and she began to describe this little blonde-haired boy. And Dad said, "Uh, that's not my son. He said, my son, he's he's way up here. And you know, no. She said, well, he was on your front porch, whoever he was. And Dad said, I I don't have a boy. And then it dawned on him, wait, they're going to drop that boy off. My dad's first introduction to Jeff was to walk in the door and say, young man, do you have a BB gun? Yes, sir. Were you sitting on the front porch a while ago? Yes, sir. I need your gun and come with me. And my dad marched him over to the neighbor's house, made him apologize to her, let her know that we were going to pay for the window and worked out a deal like my dad had worked out in my life before and said, and my son would like to mow your yard to pay for the window. And she said, well, that'd be fine. And so he got introduced very quickly to living at the Graham house. (laughs) Time moved on and... 1979, we were getting ready to have our first camp meeting out at Calvary Baptist in Tremont, Illinois. And that night in the service, God moved in in a wonderful way. My brother got saved that night among several others that got saved. It was a glorious service. The end of the service, we were getting ready to take an offering for our camp meeting that was starting on Monday and, uh, you know, to kind of raise money for the food and everything that would take place. And so my brother Jeff stood up in the midst of that and he had been saving money to buy a horse. Man, he wanted a horse so bad. And uh, he had saved at that time $200 towards buying a horse. But he stood up and said, I believe God wants me to give my $200 in the offering and gave it that night. The next night we came out for camp meeting just before it was to start. A man came pulling up with a truck and trailer. He said, where's Jeff Graham? I said, well, I'll go get him. I went and got him and brought my dad out. And he said, young man, I don't know you, but if you could love your God enough to give your money that you've been saving for a horse to this church, the least that I could do is give you a horse. 
He backed out a beautiful two-year-old registered Appaloosa mare. My brother didn't even ask him if it was broke to ride. He just jumped up and started riding that horse around the campground. He was, my name, he was in horse heaven. And Dad said, sir, I appreciate the gift, but can I ask you a question? Are you a Christian? He said, no, sir, but I respect anybody that's that committed to the Lord. Dad said, would you like to come in service? He said, I can't come tonight, but I'll be back Friday night. Sure enough, he kept his word. He came back Friday night, walked the aisle, gave his heart and life to Jesus Christ. He and his family got in church there. Man, it was an exciting thing. A, a few months went by and they began to grow in the Lord. He came to my dad one day and said, uh, Pastor, I, I got a friend at work that wants to get saved and his wife wants to get saved and some of his family wants to get saved and I'm not sure I know exactly how to do this by myself. Can you go Go with me dad said absolutely so my dad called me we were getting ready to have a school meeting that night for our christian school and uh, i said to dad um you're not going to be there he said no i said where are you going he said i'm going fishing you handle the meeting i said wow where are you going fishing and then he said i'm going fishing for men he said i got some folks want to get saved tonight you can take care of the school meeting. You know, I got the fun stuff. Anyway, so anyway, I, I, I did that part. And Dad went, took one of the men with him, got to the house. And he said, to my surprise, he said, I was thinking this man, his wife, maybe a couple of children. This man had gathered all of his family. And uh, I mean, married children and their spouses and men the house. And Dad said, when I pulled up, saw all these vehicles, I thought, man, there's no way that, that these people are going to, you know, they got company. This is going to not work out. But when he got in there, he began to speak to him and said, I understand sir that you'd like to get saved he said yes sir we all would you all would yes me my wife all we all want to get saved tell us how and dad said man you got that many people it's time to have church so he just opened word of god and began to preach and teach them and explain to them and before it was all over with they trusted christ as their savior Dad said to them, look, if you mean business, it's 40 miles to a Bible-believing church, but if you'll come to church, you know, and, and of course before long they came, followed the Lord, believers' baptism, became active in our church. And in 1981, we were Sunday morning service. Brother John, our youth pastor, preached a message on a cry for revival. He gave an invitation, and at the invitation... Only one person walked forward. It was my brother. After the service, he met with John and he said, John, I'm so burdened to see revival. There's such a, such a dearth of spirituality going on right now. and I, I just want you to know that I told the Lord today that if it would take my life, that's what I would give to see revival take place. Now hear me tonight. I'm not at all suggesting someone has to die to bring revival. But that was the prayer my brother made. Brother John said, wait a minute, Jeff, that's a serious statement. He said, I know, but that's what I'm willing to do. And then as he sat down with John, he gave him the name of 54 different young people that he was concerned that either they were lost or that they were away from the Lord. And he said, I've told the Lord whatever it takes that's what I'm willing to do. That was on Sunday. On Tuesday, my brother was working on his car. And uh, the car, uh, there was a wind that came up and it, and it slipped off the jack and off the block that he had. And the car fell on him and crushed him. And sent him out into eternity. That was Tuesday night. Thursday night, we had the visitation. I was at the visitation standing by the casket of my brother. And Brother John, our youth pastor came running forward and he said glory to God I said do what man he said you're not gonna believe it he said young people getting saved getting right with God he said every single young person 
whose name was on that list has either gotten saved or gotten right with God. He said, God is sending revival in our church and to our young people. It swept through our community. I don't have time to tell you all the details. God worked at his funeral. There were, there were 10 people that trusted Christ as their Savior. One of those that got saved was his biological brother. Another one that came forward trusting Christ was his biological father who had been in a lot of trouble for the way he treated him. And though he wasn't recognized at the funeral for being family, he wanted what Jeff had. His brother told me this. As we stood by the casket, he said, I'd give everything I have if I could have what he had, even though he only lived 16 years. I said, you can have what he had if you'll give your heart to Jesus. Had the privilege of leading his brother to the Lord, but beyond that, on the way home, there was a young man who had attended the service. He was from a Christian school in another part of our, our uh, uh, state. And uh, on the way home, they said they were driving back with a group of the students and their pastor and their basketball coach. And as they were riding along Interstate 74 up towards Galesburg, that young man cried out, Stop the car! I need to get saved. Got out on the side of the road, gave his heart to Christ, went on to be a pastor. I've preached revival for men that got saved or got right with God or surrendered their life to God at my brother's funeral. And I'm simply saying God took one young man who said whatever it takes. By the way, those folks that got saved through the guy that had given the horse in 1981, we began to work with them and uh, started a mission and then, of course, organized as a New Testament Baptist church. The same man that was our youth pastor then is still pastoring that church today uh, and started as their pastor from the very beginning. And I'm just simply saying God took one young man who said, I'll do whatever it takes. Listen, I'm not saying that we have to die to have revival, but I am going to say this. We're going to have to die to self if we want to have revival. We've got to get beyond our old pet feelings and our hurts and our little uh, innuendos and somebody took my pew. I can't believe this. But I've actually known people get their feelings hurt because somebody took their seat. I've known people to get upset and the silliest things. And can I tell you something? Eternity's hanging in the balance. Amen. Let's get beyond that kind of silliness. The responsibility comes to us, but then notice the resource for the fire. It's interesting. They, they build a fire. These are heathens that are just building a physical fire. But I appreciate Paul. Paul wanted to add something to the fire. So he goes out and starts gathering sticks. Can I tell you something? We come, we listen, we want our preacher to feed us, we want the evangelist to feed us, and yet we come to the house of God. The question begs to be asked, what did you bring in your bundle? Paul was out gathering sticks. You know what? Paul said, I'm not going to just hope that somebody else has a fire for me. I'm going to gather some stuff myself. Amen. So Paul went out. What, what, what have you brought in your bundle? Well, how about, how about gathering some sticks of prayer? How, how about gathering some sticks of participating? Uh, how about gathering some sticks of praise to God be the glory, great things He had done? How about gathering the sticks of a purposed heart? Lord, what would you like for me to do? Lord, what would you desire for me to do? Or do we just expect our pastor to bring it all Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, week after week, month after month, and just sit there and say, Preacher, uh, help me if you can. Bless me if you can. Feed me if you can. Or do I want to bring some contribution to be a part of the revival that God wants us to experience. Paul wanted to add to the fire. But then notice, if you will, the resistance to the fire. You know, anytime the work of God begins to get going, it seems like there's 
always some resistance. I was preaching revival with Brother Maury Gibson many years ago in a little, little bitty town in Arkansas. You know, God bless the church that was brave enough to have both of us at the same time. And the pastor of that church, who is still the pastor there, I just saw him, we preached together recently and reminisced about that meeting. He, at that time, they were in an old building that looked like it was about to fall down. And now they've built two buildings since then. But we were, God moved in the meeting in a marvelous way and the crowds were growing and soon it got to be standing room only and God was working in a mighty way. The preacher had rented an hour on the local radio station and so they were broadcasting the sermon and the invitation, the, maybe the song right before the message. And, and uh, one night we were having the invitation and the song leader was up leading the singing. He had the songbook right here. And, and they were having an invitation hymn. And he was standing there holding the book, getting ready to sing the invitation hymn. And hadn't got going very long. And all of a sudden, a young man come running out of the crowd and ran up to the song leader, wrapped his arms around his legs and began to cry, Dad, I'm so sorry. Dad, please forgive me. Dad, I need to get saved. And his dad dropped down began to deal with his son and had the privilege of leading his own son to Christ. I found out later that young man had left home in rebellion. That young man had been a prodigal away from the Lord. His dad didn't even know he was in the building that night. But God brought him in and brought him to a place of, of truly repenting and getting right with God. It was interesting, the, the uh, fellow on the radio station said, Folks, it's time for us to leave the service right now. But I don't know about you, I'm kind of interested to see what's going to happen. So we're going to stay with the service a few more minutes till we find out what's happened in this invitation. Man, it was exciting. One night, Brother Gibson and I, with the preacher, walked out the front door of the church. As we stepped out there, this little country church, a man come rolling up in his pickup truck. I mean, barely got it in park and literally jumped out in front of us and began to weep. He'd been listening on the radio and he said, I need to get saved. What do I need to do? I'm talking about God is able to work when we are willing to get in a place to let the fire of God burn. But I'll assure you there's going to be an effort by the devil to fight. You ever notice how when you get serious about living for God, the devil fights against it? There's not a Christian. I mean, there's not a Christian in here. I mean, if you're truly saved, there's not a Christian in here that you don't have a desire to read the Word of God. I believe that. But I do believe that the devil's going to do everything he can to interrupt your Bible reading times. You're determined, I'm going to have a better prayer life. And can I tell you, he's going to fight every way he can. I'm going to really sell out. I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm going to be on the fire. I'm just telling you, the devil will do everything he can. Sometimes there's a stalled fire. You know, some people work to put the fire out. Don't get excited. One fellow said he went to church one time, and man, the preacher said something good, and he hollered amen. Somebody said, well, hey, you need to quiet down. Well, I'm excited about the Lord. So we didn't get that here. Go somewhere else. <laughs> Folks, I'm not into wildfire. But we're the redeemed of the Lord. We can say so. And I'm just simply saying, as we come to the house of God, you know, sometimes people get excited about the Lord. And I got saved, I told you, August 12, 1970, down at a camp meeting. And man, I was so excited. I wanted everybody to get saved. And I said that when I got up and made public my profession of faith. I was so excited. I said, man, I want to see everybody get saved. There was a guy that met me right after service. He said, young man, I appreciate your enthusiasm, but I just want to tell you right now, everybody isn't going to get saved. Well, I wish I'd have never met him. 
I know everybody's not going to get saved. But that doesn't change the fact I still want to see everybody get saved. And I love it. You know, if there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels over one sinner that repenteth, it ought to excite us. It ought to thrill our hearts when somebody comes to know the Lord. And yet sometimes the devil will work. The, the minister of wet blanket will show up every time he possibly can. And, and what is the ministry of wet blanket? Well, sometimes it's the ministry of criticism. I don't know about that evangelist. He was too loud. He was too long. He tells too many stories. He's obviously too hungry. <laughs> Amen. But not as bad as Brother Gibson. Criticism. Complacency. I've heard it all before. You know, I grew up in church. I started going to church before I was born. I went Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, every time there was a revival meeting. I, I said this, my dad, of course, if there was something going on at church, we were there. And, and I'm not being critical. Listen, my dad, was, I didn't have the kind of parents that said, well, they have homework, so they won't be able to be at church. No, 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 no. I mean, church was number one in our life. But I'll tell you something else. When I was growing up and going to church, I, I tell people I went to every meeting. I'm not sure that they didn't slip me into a few of the ladies' meetings at our church. I'm not really sure. But it seemed like I was there every time the door was open. I might have been doing some cleaning for them or something else. But, man, I don't resent that. I'm not bitter about it. I'm not, I, I don't get these people running, oh, I had to go to church when I was a kid. Man, that's silly. I'm thrilled. You know, I've had parents say to me, I don't want to make my children go to church because they'll grow up hating church. Well, don't make them brush their teeth or they'll grow up hating toothbrush and toothpaste. And they'll have rotten teeth for it. It's, it's okay to say, and by the way, don't make it like it's a death sentence. Don't make it like it's a drudgery. Your children, we have to go to church. No, no, man, it's exciting. We get to go to church. We're going to get to be with the people of God. This is, you know what I love? I've enjoyed watching the fellowship. I love to see it. Now, I understand we want the balance. We want our children to respect the house of God. I understand all that. I love it when I get out there in the hallway and I can see the children interacting and happy to be at the house of God. Man, that's exciting to watch people fellowship. Hey, that's a good thing. Man, listen, folks, we are going to spend eternity together in heaven. We might as well enjoy each other's company a little bit while we're here. But maybe it's the wet blanket of just complaint or coldness. And, and you know, uh, we have to not to allow the devil to stall the fire of God in our life. But can I say we have to be careful about strange fire. The Bible said in Numbers chapter 3 and verse 4, And Nadab and Abihu died before the Lord when they offered strange fire before the Lord. Now I'm not talking about trying to get you excited about strange fire, wicked fire, wild fire, silly fire. I'm going to tell you something. If it doesn't line up with the Word of God, it's not of God. God's never going to lead you to do something contrary to this book. God is not going to be a part of that. Somebody says, well, you know, I had this vision. We probably ate too much pepperoni pizza. God's not going to lead you contrary to the Word of God. So don't, don't go out and say, I think Brother Graham was kind of advocating for wildfire. Not in your lifetime. But I do want to say, God's people ought to be filled with the power of God. We ought to long to have his touch. But then notice, lastly, the real test of your fire. Here's Paul gathering sticks. And all of a sudden, a serpent comes out. The Bible said a venomous beast uh, comes out and uh, latches onto him. And the Bible said that the crowd's watching him as it bites his hand. And uh, he, of course, uh, uh, is gathering these sticks. And we notice that when uh, Paul is trying to help add to the fire, here comes the real test. And can I tell you tonight? 
you're going to find the presence of the serpent is always around when you get serious about serving God. You know, he doesn't bother you as long as you're not serious about living for God. But you get serious about living for the Lord, and he's going to do everything he can to try to get you out. He's going to do everything he can to try to discourage you, distract you, defeat you if he possibly can. The presence of the serpent, but notice the purpose of the serpent as it bit him. You know, it's interesting, the Bible said that when that serpent bit him, immediately they started saying, well, no doubt this guy's a murderer. He escaped, the, you know, he escaped off the ship and the shipwreck, but I'll tell you what, he's going to die. He's a murderer. That's why he's been bit. And so the Bible said, and they were watching him, him in verse 6, howbeit they looked when he should have swollen or fallen down dead suddenly, but after they had looked a great while, they saw no harm had come to him. They changed their minds. You know, the world's watching us. We may not even realize it. And I, I hope you don't mind a personal illustration, but in 1977, my sister Karen was killed in a car wreck. The local funeral home handled all the arrangements and we had the funeral. I did not know this. A year later, Miss Graham and I had our, our first baby was stillborn. We had a little girl. And I went down to make arrangements for the funeral and get the little casket and all those things prepared. And when I went in there, the owner of the funeral home said, uh, Brother Ken, I know your insurance isn't going to cover any of this. We're going to pay for it. We're going to cover the casket. We're going to cover everything. The only thing you'll have to do is, is uh, take care of getting the grave plot. Everything else is covered as our gift to you. And I said, oh, you can't do that. He said, no, you don't understand. Last year at your sister's funeral, he said, my son was away from God. My son had made some bad decisions in his life. He worked with me in the business, but he was away from God. And he said, last year when your sister's funeral took place, my son got right with God. And he said, ever since then, by the way, the funeral director's grandfather had been a preacher. And he said, ever since then, my son's back in church. He's serving the Lord. And he said, it's, it's the least we could do. You never know who's watching you. Can I tell you something? The world's watching to see what you're going to do when things don't go like you planned or activities or, or events happen in life that you didn't expect. And they're, they're waiting because the world knows how they would respond. They don't quite know how to take it when a child of God. And I said it last night. We sorrow, but not as others which have no hope. There's a peace in my heart that the world never gave me, a peace it cannot take away. An everlasting peace, and I know it's there to stay. And man, if we could show to the world the joy of the Lord is our strength, what a difference it would make. The serpent wanted to see him fall by the wayside, but we see the powerlessness of the serpent. When he bit uh, Paul, it was too late. He had already been defeated. I want to remind you, we're on the winning side. We are more than conquerors through Christ that loved us and gave himself for us. And Jesus settled at Calvary the eternal destiny of our enemy. The devil which deceived them was cast in a lake of fire. Revelation chapter 20 tells us very clearly what his fate is. Folks, I want to remind you, we're on the winning side. Because we are, we need to be about our Father's business. Asking God, send revival to my heart. You know, it's easy to say, I'll tell you, Brother Graham, I know this guy, I know this lady, man, she really needs revival. And I understand that. But what we ought to be asking is, Lord, where am I at? Help me, Lord, to look into my own heart and life and see where I'm at in my walk with God. 
And Lord, one more time, say, Brother Graham, do you think we'll see a worldwide revival? Do you think we'll see a nationwide revival? You know what would thrill my heart? I'd love to see a church-wide revival. I'd love to see a community-wide revival. I want to tell you something. There's not one thing that can stop you personally from having revival in your heart if you want it. Father, we love you. Thank you for the word of God. The great apostle Paul was used so mightily this day to give us a great illustration of what it's like to have the fire of God fall and work in the midst of such adversity. Lord, our world is in such a mess. And the burdens of God's people are real, and yet we know, God, that you're still able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think. And all we're asking is that you would revive us again. Fill each heart with thy love. Lord, may we truly, truly be rekindled with that fire from above. Bless the invitation time. May your Holy Spirit take complete control. And we'll give you the praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're standing to our feet tonight as the music is playing. If God spoke to your heart and you need to come, let's take advantage of the altar. And if you're not able to make it to the altar and you're not able to stand, I I understand that, but you can kneel right there by your seat. I could ask you these couple of questions tonight. Do we need revival? Oh, our nation needs it. I don't know about your community, but I have a strong suspicion like mine it needs revival. But a bigger question tonight is, do we want it? And if we want it, are we willing to call on the one who can truly send revival? Would you let him have his way right now? God, speak into your heart. Kindle a fire. Lord, let it start with me. Let me add something to the fire. Let me bring some prayer and some faith and some hope and some encouragement. You're here tonight and you don't know Christ as your Savior. I've certainly preached to the church tonight, but if you're not saved, I want to invite you to come. Let somebody open the book and show you how you can know for sure you're on your way to heaven. God is able to give you everlasting life. Would you come tonight? These are praying. These are praying. Lord, what would you have me to do? Search your heart. How's your walk with God? See if there be any wicked way in me. Whatever would be there, Lord, help me to get it out of the way. Let's mind the Lord.